Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Film Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nathan Abrams, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to David Schwartz about his new book, David Cronenberg Interviews. David Schwartz is manager of theatrical programming for Netflix, overseeing the Paris Theatre in Manhattan. He was chief curator at the Museum of the Moving Image and received a special award from the New York Film Critics Circle for his 33 year tenure there. He's been a professor of film history at Purchase College and New York University. David Schwartz, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. It's great to have you. Um, David, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. I, I, you know, as you said, I worked for a very long time at the Museum of the Moving Image. So I went to film school at Purchase College, got interested in film programming, and, um, and at, you know, pretty, I spent basically my first year of college at, uh, at Columbia University in Manhattan. Um, and I went to class and did okay in class, but I spent the whole year going to repertory theaters. Um, you know, all I did that year basically was go to movies and I, I caught the bug of uh, repertory film programming. Um, and, and I, you know, it was hard to think at the time that there was going to be a career in that. There aren't that many. It's a small field. Um, but I went to study filmmaking. And um, and then I was just very lucky to get a job at the uh, American Museum of the Moving Image, which was doing programming um, and opened in, in 1988. So, I mean, interestingly, it opened um, almost at, at the exact same time as the Museum of the Moving Image in London. So, but they're different institutions. Um, so I, I was there for, you know, for a very long time. David Cronenberg uh, became one of my favorite directors early on. Um, but just to finish about, about myself, I mean, I, I left the museum in 2018, did a bunch of I guess, freelance programming. I was doing a bunch of different things, including teaching and, and film programming. And then um, Netflix, um, came in and uh, to New York City and took over the, the Paris Theater. 
So the Paris Theater is a kind of legendary art house cinema that opened in 1948. It's the oldest standing um, single screen theater in in New York City now, and it's the oldest art house cinema. But it was going to close down. You know, a a lot of theaters um, have been shutting down in recent years. Uh, and in, in New York City, it's a large that largely has to do with real estate. It's you know the, the property is so valuable, and it's just hard for theaters to stay in business. So the Paris was going to close down, but Netflix came in and, and decided they wanted to keep the theater running, use it as a showcase for their own films, but also do repertory programming, do a mix of programming. So um, I wound up getting the job as programmer of the Paris. So, you know, it's an odd turn of events that I, that, uh, you know, I'm continuing my love of film programming, but doing it for a streaming company, you know, essentially a streaming company, Netflix. So uh, Netflix does do, you know, have some, some involvement in theatrical film. We release our, you know, a a lot of movies actually. So, uh, so anyhow, that's, that's, that sort of brings us up to now. Yeah, that's great. Um, well, you mentioned that Cronenberg was one of your favorite directors, but how did you come to edit David Cronenberg interviews? Oh, well, it's a, I mean, so I, um, early on at my, my time at the Museum of the Moving Image, I did a, a full retrospective um, of Cronenberg's films. And it was one of the first major retrospectives that I, that I put together. Um, I, you know, put a lot of work into it. It was connected to um, the release of Naked Lunch. So Naked Lunch came out um, end of 1991, beginning of 92. And um, that was released by a major studio, by Fox. Um, And uh, I knew that was going to be released. And that, um, uh, so I decided to do a, um, a, a Cronenberg retrospective in conjunction with the release of Naked Lunch. So we spent a lot of time on that. And, and as a result of doing that, I met Cronenberg um, and he came to the museum and I did the first of a bunch of interviews that I've done with him over the years. Um, he was already like a very important filmmaker to me, uh, mainly on the strength of Videodrome, which had like a profound impact on me. I saw it when I was really just getting very serious about film and um, it's just such an amazing movie for so many different reasons. It's so much about filmmaking itself. And then in addition to being a movie about filmmaking, it's also a movie about television and video. And it was really ahead of its time in, in exploring both these different forms. And um, I actually saw that movie at, at first on um, on VHS. It was... it. Videodrome came out right about the, t- the time when there was the advent of, of home video. And that's how I experienced it. So it was this kind of profound experience that made me think about video and movies and, and all, you know, everything I was interested in at the time. Um, so, so I met Cronenberg, interviewed him back when we did that retrospective and he, you know, and, and I think it comes across in the book. He's just an incredibly, brilliant and interesting person, you know, as a, as a thinker and as a speaker, he is, um, you know, thoughtful, um, incredibly well-read, filled with ideas, um, yet he's not pretentious. You know, he's somebody who likes to uh, focus on the 
pragmatics of filmmaking and not get too theoretical in his, in his discussions, but he's always, you know, filled with ideas. Um, and he's, and he's very, very funny. I mean, if you've, if you've seen him in person, um, or, you know, he's incredibly dry and, and funny. So, um, you know, so the book, so, so over the years, I developed the idea of putting together a book of Cronenberg interviews. And, um, the book consists of not just, um, my interviews with him. There's, there's a few, I think there's maybe three interviews that I've done with him, but the rest of the interviews in the book are by other writers. Um, and there's great, there's just a, a bunch of great interviews out there because he's so brilliant. And I think he brings out, um, you know, his film is so much about ideas that he always makes for a good conversation. So he, you know, so some of the best, most interesting film critics, um, and, and professors interviewed him and, that, uh, and they're, they're in the book. So, yeah, so that's, that's how it came about. It's part of the series of, um, it, of filmmaker interview books. It's done by the university of Mississippi press. You know, they've done, uh, they must have about a hundred of these books, but, um, somehow nobody had, had put together a Cronenberg compilation. So it became kind of a natural project for me to do. Why do you think that is? Why hadn't it happened? I don't know. You know, that's a great question. I don't know. Um, uh, yeah, I probably, I think I just um, like put my dibs in on it early on. You know, I, I um, there, it was a long time between coming up with the idea of doing the book and actually doing it. And, you know, and it actually wasn't until I, uh, <laughs> I didn't really have time to do it until I left the museum you know, and, and found myself with, with enough time on my hands to actually complete a book. But um, yeah, I'm lucky. I don't know. I just feel, I feel lucky that I, I was able to, you know, be the one, you know, chosen to edit this book. So um, yeah. Yeah. And it's my first book. So. Would you like to talk us through the contents of the book? Um... Um, yeah, I, sure. I mean, I think, um, the book, I, I believe the structure for these books in the series um, is that they're chronological, you know, so basically the, um, I, I spent a lot of time compiling interviews and, you know, the kind of key to putting these books together is um, finding some unpublished material, but also finding, um, you know, material that might be, might've been published, but is out of print and then getting the rights, you know, so it's usually, it means contacting all the different authors. Um, so one of, so there's a few like very long interviews in, in the book. Um, and one of the key pieces for me was, was, um, the first one, the first interview in the book, um, is, is a, a, um, sort of career interview up to date that takes us up to 1982 or 83. And there was a book called The Shape of Rage that was published um, in Canada by the Academy of Canadian Cinema in, um, in 1983. And it was the first book that came out that sort of took Cronenberg really seriously as a director. Um, and it was a little bit audacious at the time in Canada because Cronenberg um, was mainly known for his horror movies. You know, he was sort of a thinking person's horror movie director, but um, Canadian cinema at the time was known for, you know, for doing, 
for producing documentaries and for more like socially conscious films. And the idea, there wasn't really um, another example of a director like Cronenberg working in Canada who was doing, you know, kind of interesting and artistic films, you know, what we call auteur films and working in the horror genre. And he ran into trouble a number of times. You know, his early films were what had government money behind them. And, um, you know, uh, and he, he got into a number of censor- censorship battles. Um, but that interview, you know, talks about his early career and is really, really key to the book. Um, and, um, you know, then we just sort of go chronologically. So, so the first few interviews in the book, co- you know, cover his horror film period. Um, you know, which range, ranges from his early movies um, uh, that came from within and rabid, you know, horror movie starring Marilyn Chambers, who was best known as a, a, an actress in, you know, pornography. Um, and, and The Brood and Scanners, you know, those movies. Um, Cronenberg and the interviews follow this, this um, trajectory in his career. He then make you know makes a number of films for Hollywood studios, and they're sort of high budget horror films. Um, you know, Videodrome was released by Universal. He does The Dead Zone, starring Christopher Walken. Uh, probably his most commercial film was The Fly. Um, you know, a remake of nineteen fifty science fiction film that was produced by Mel Brooks. And um, star Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis, and was I think his biggest commercial success. So he had he had that period where he was doing kind of big budget horror movies, um, and then he moves in a different direction. You know, he goes uh, he makes um, Dead Ringers, which was also produced by a big studio, but is a very kind of audacious film with uh, starring Jeremy Irons um, in in, a, in double roles as. Um, two brothers who are twins who are gynecologists and, and uh, there are elements of sexuality and horror which run throughout all of Cronenberg's films. And, um, you know, it's a beautifully made film uh, and um, one of his greatest accomplishments, um, but it was a very odd film for a major studio to be releasing. And, um, and Cronenberg kind of shifts after that film and starts to move away from um, his own original scripts to doing adaptations. You know, he does Naked Lunch. Um, and then m- many of his films, are, almost all of his films since Naked Lunch are adaptations. You know, where he's taken the work of other of other authors and adapted them. He, he has a few original films, um, like Existence, 1999. But, but mainly he's, um, you know sort of shifted from being a, a horror movie director to do, being a director of, adap- of literary adaptations. Um, yet, you know, as, as with all great directors, he's somebody whose uh, work is always recognizable. He's always exploring the same sort of themes, you know, so when he was making horror movies, you know, he was interested in, you know, themes about the body versus the mind and, and sexuality and death and, you know, all these themes that carry through to his more like what you would, you know, more like serious films, I guess, and more prestige films. Um, so that that's a very interesting career trajectory. Um, 
you know, so there's anyhow, to get back to the book, there's, you know, there is a combination of shorter and longer interviews um, that cover this whole trajectory that he goes through. Uh, there a writer named David Breskin did a very, very long interview um, right around the time that Naked Lunch came out. And that was um, done, I believe, for Rolling Stone. They published a much shorter version. Um, the, the full interview, which I think is 30,000 words, it's very, very long, um, is what, what I publish here in the book. So you get to read this, you know, very, very long uh, look at his whole, his whole career up to that point. Yeah. And then, we, you know, so, so there's some of my favorite writers are in here. Uh, Amy Taubin, um, who writes for Art Forum and used to write for The Village Voice a lot and has always been probably the most astute and perceptive writer consistently on Cronenberg throughout his career. Uh, you know, it's a number of interviews by her in the book. So I, I was going to ask um, on that note, if you had a favorite interview in the book. Oh, um I love the, I mean, I love Amy Tabin's discussion um, about the movie Cosmopolis, probably because I, um, that's one of my favorite films. And it's a movie that, that um, not universally liked. It was, um, <laughs> it got very mixed reviews. It's an adaptation of a Don DeLillo novella, um, you know, with Robert Pattinson, um, who is a kind of, you know, wealthy sort of, you know, he's in finances and the whole movie follows him on a limousine ride across a city. And um, I think it's a pretty incredible film and underrated. And, and the discussion on that is really interesting. Um, but I think that the, for the first interview from the book, The Shape of Rage is, is great to me because that's the one where Cronenberg talks about his formative years. And I think that it was really important to sort of learn about how he grew up <laughs> to learn about the support he had from his family. You know, there's this funny thing and, um, where people will sometimes make the mistake of thinking that a filmmaker who makes very strange movies and deals with uh, horror is going to sort of be like that, like be very, strange in person and scary somehow. And there's this famous story about Cronenberg uh, from when he, when he met Scorsese for the first time. Um, Scorsese was a big fan of, of Cronenberg's films. And there was some event where they were going to meet. And Scorsese, when he introduced himself to Cronenberg, said, oh, I was really like frightened about meeting you. And Cronenberg said, why? And he said, well, look at your films. I mean, look at The Brood and Scanner's you know, I was like afraid to meet the person who made these movies. And of course, Cronenberg pointed out the irony of that right away because he's, you know, talking to the man who made Taxi Driver. Um, so, <laughs> you know, the films, the the personality of the director is, is not, you know, doesn't map exactly to the what we're looking on screen, looking at on screen. You know, so when, when you read about Cronenberg's upbringing, he had two very supportive uh, you know, he, had, he came from a sort of upper middle class Jewish um, intellectual background. His mother was a musician. His father loved books. And uh, he was surrounded by books and music when he was growing up and um, clearly had an incredibly supportive upbringing. You know, he didn't have a tortured childhood. 
that would make him like decide to go into making horror movies. In fact, it was the opposite. He had, um, a, you know, a lot of freedom and he was encouraged to think and be artistic and, and read and, um, you know, be creative. And it was actually a very safe environment. And, um, and so he always sort of moved towards, towards art. And he, he was very interested early on in avant-garde art. So he sort of came of age in the 1960s and was really drawn to the avant-garde film scene. Uh, he actually, with a group of friends, started a film collective in Toronto where they were showing avant-garde films. These were movies by, you know, uh, Andy Warhol and, and Stan Brakhage and other directors in the avant-garde world. Cronenberg um, was very interested in that. And it's a direction he could have gone in. He could have become basically an avant-garde filmmaker. Um, uh, but he decided n- not to do that. Um, he talks in the book about two different trips he makes to, to, Caen, to Cannes in France. You know, he went once. He lived in France for a while, um, I guess in the 70s. And at that time, he really was thinking about becoming an, an artist of some kind. Um, but then his second trip to Cannes, uh, which was a few years later, he saw the film festival there and um, started to see that, you know, he, even though he, he was interested in making film and drawn to the avant-garde pra- you know, practice of film, but he also was attracted to the commercial side of filmmaking. You know, and he realized that if you make commercial films, you can find the money to make films, you can reach a bigger audience. And that idea really interested him. him. So he decided early on that he was not going to make avant-garde films that would be seen by very, very small audiences, but that he would find a way to, to like get funding for his films, to make films with substantial budgets, but most importantly, films that would reach a lot of people. Um, and, and so he kind of latched on, um, he makes some very interesting, as a stu- student, he makes some very interesting sort of mini avant-garde features. You know, he made a movie called Crimes of the Future and a movie called Stereo. And those are narrative films, but th- they're sort of science fiction, sla- speculative science fiction slash horror movies. Um, and um, that were, again, very non-commercial, but really interesting and, and Crimes of the Future actually is the title of his upcoming movie. He's like right now finishing up a movie called Crimes of the Future, which should be coming out later this year. Um, but when he really decides to take a leap into feature length filmmaking, he um, does a movie that's uh, made in Montreal called They Came From Within, um, also known as, uh, as Shivers, which is about an apartment complex where there's a, a parasite that is attacking the, the people who live there. And when this parasite gets into the, their bodies, it turns them into, you know, ravenous, like sex crazed monsters. So, um, and that's, the, that's one of the movies I was referring to earlier that was made with some government funding, but um, it is, uh, you know, filled with um, gore and kind of gross out imagery and, um, you know, ends with, you know, zombies kind of taking over. Um, there's ele- a little bit of elements of social commentary in the movie, but, um, you know, the 
there were a lot of people who were attacking Cronenberg for making a movie like this, you know, with government money. He was attacked in the press. Um, but he sort of got a lot of notoriety from that film. And the film also was clearly made by a smart, talented filmmaker. And then he was able to go on and make these other horror movies, um, Rabbit and the Brood and Scanners, where he really developed an international following. Yeah, it's interesting because when you mentioned the avant-garde, um, I, I often show uh, Cronenberg clips um, mm. when I teach surrealism. And, okay, uh, from what? Like from which which films? Um, Existence I use. I use the bit with the um, where he's eating, um, Jude Law's character's eating the soup in, in the restaurant and he discovers that bone gun. And um, yeah, I find it's interesting, you know, that that, that what's real, what's, um, what's dream, you know, that... that and, and then that whole kind of um, revulsion through food, I think, is a very interesting sequence. Just to show how, you know, I wouldn't say that Cronenberg was a surrealist film director, but surrealism has influenced his films. Um, I mean, absolutely. I think it was very important for him, the idea of, of um, the freedom of surrealism, you know, where as an artist you can be in touch with any kind of impulse that you have you know, which could be stem, you know, from from dreams or from sexual impulses or, or violent impulses. He wanted to explore that and explore the messy, messiness of life. And, the, you know, if, if there's one theme that goes throughout all of Cronenberg's films and one tension, it's the tension between um, the mind, the brain, what, you know, what the brain can create and, and the whole world of ideas and what goes on inside our brain. Um, versus the messiness of existence, the fact that all of us are um, as cerebral as we are and as filled with ideas as we are, we're all people. We're all like trapped in these like sacks of, of flesh, which are, you know, going to grow old and decay and cause us problems and, um, you know, uh, cause impulses and desires and drives that we, we don't have control over. So he's always fascinated by that tension. And that's a, na- a natural subject to explore in horror movies. I mean, that's what the horror movie genre is, is about, but it's also something he explores in, in all of his films, you know, naked lunch, um, is about, you know, this world that is created by an artist who lives in a, you know, basically a tenement in New York and goes into this imaginary world, you know, which is the world of naked lunch, the world that William Burroughs creates. Um, uh, and, and, and Cronenberg, um, is great at creating that freedom and creating a freedom that, uh, goes beyond any rules. You know, he's very interested in being transgressive. You know, he clearly has his own identity as a male, you know, white male heterosexual artist, but as one who is interested, doesn't want to be limited in terms of what he can think about or show on film. So he explores all different forms of sexuality and, and is always giving us characters who are crossing lines. Mm. I mean, I was particularly interested in the you know sense of revulsion um, that's created and um, decay, putrefaction, and there's something visceral when it's food. I mean, well, food becomes literally visceral, doesn't it? But um, you know, um, um, that I found particularly interesting. Um, so, so a question I wanted to ask was, I mean, clearly you probably learned a lot 
um, assembling these interviews. Uh, you probably already know a lot. Um, and I was wondering, um, in lieu of a conclusion to the book, because it's not that kind of book, what, what you'd say you'd learnt or would want to... Well, that's two questions. What had you learnt um, new from doing this? Um, and, and then secondly, if you had to kind of do a conclusion or an epilogue, what, what would you yeah. learn? It's a, it's a great question. I mean, I think, um, you know, I think what I thought about a lot when I was reading the interviews is uh, how interested Cronenberg was in working with actors and, and also how interested he was in the just like practicalities of film production, like the choices that are made on a set um, and uh, but but mainly his work with actors and you know there is this thing I'm sure you've come across this a lot um, when you read interviews with directors you know directors tend to not like to talk like to theorize about their their work they tend to always speak very pragmatically you know and and film is a pragmatic art form you know I think of all the art forms um what film is, you know, it's all about taking whatever vision you, you have, whatever ideas you have. And, you know, you, as somebody who's written about Kubrick, I mean, Kubrick, I think is the greatest example of this is that, you know, Kubrick is all about the mind and, and the world of the mind. Um, but he's also about how that gets embodied in the world. And his films are all about, you know, I think what Kubrick shares with Cronenberg is the films are all about how to take this world of ideas and translate it into reality, which is what you do on film. Um, and, and so film was like a perfect art form for Cronenberg to work in because that's, that's what he was always doing. You know, he would always come to a set with a bunch of, with ideas, but really what he was working with were, on, on the set was not the ideas, but the, how he was going to stage something, where he was going to put the camera. Um, and then, how the, you know, what the actors would bring to it. And the actors always have to embody these characters. Uh, and Cronenberg's work with actors, I feel is a bit underrated. I mean, it's not what people tend to focus on with Cronenberg. You know, they tend to focus on the world he creates and these like shocking images that he creates. But um, I think the performances are, are essential, you know, especially, you know, I mean, Jeremy Irons, um, in Dead Ringers and, uh, you know, I think Ray Fiennes and, and Spider. I mean, there's a number of like truly extraordinary performances in Cronenberg's films. And that's because he's somehow, um, you know, everything that Cronenberg's films are about has to be expressed through the, the tension of uh, the characters, the people that we're seeing on screen. And the actors have to like make that real. Um, so that's like the area that I was focusing on a lot as, and, and Cronenberg talks about that a lot in the interviews. And I, I came across that early on, like the first time that I interviewed Cronenberg, uh, I had been like thinking about him so much, you know, it's been spending like a, a year thinking about Cronenberg and thinking about the themes of his films. And I interviewed him on stage at the museum of the moving image and started asking him, about some of his early short films and about like the theme of alienation um, and identity in the, in the film um, in one of his like student films. And he just didn't want to 
like discuss the film in that way. You know, he basically, he didn't want to get up there and kind of pontificate and theorize about his films. Um, and so he kind of shifted the conversation and he said, let's just take questions from the audience. And like, he just wanted to, and I, it was very educational for me because I realized like the way to talk to Cronenberg is not to like go straight for the ideas, but to talk about the specifics of the choices he's making and, you know, the specifics of, of his practical decisions and the ideas will come out, you know, if, as you, um, I mentioned this in the introduction to the book, like he's just constantly referring to different authors um, and philosophers. You know, I think he covers about 10 or 15 major philosophers, you know, throughout these interviews. And he, you know, these references are all in his head. He's uh, constantly thinking about them and living, you know, living them. But um, he, um, you know, he, it's, it's part of who he is and he's not trying to be heavy handed, I guess, in in laying out the ideas and he doesn't want the films to be prescriptive, you know, to, to have like a message that could be defined or an idea that could be defined. You know, the films are always very complicated. Yeah. Um, that's inter- yeah. No, interesting. I mean, I'd, I'd love it. Another time, a longer conversation about Kubrick and Cronenberg. But it, yeah, it's interesting. It's a great that, topic. Yeah, that he didn't want to focus on the thinkers because what comes out is, you know, they aren't just the ones he adapted. You know, William Burroughs or, um, um, for example, but, you know, you look through Norman, o, uh, Norman o Brown, um, Nabokov, um, C.S. Lewis, there's um, Freud, a lot, Freud, of, a lot yeah, about Freud. Yeah. <laughs> Freud, I mean, Kafka, um, right. I love I loved that. Um, introduction he wrote for the recent translation of metamorphosis um and its relationship to the fly um oh i that's that's well worth um checking out not least because the book's got a lovely cover um but it's very interesting i suppose you know for someone whose work is influenced by thinkers and whose names he drops and that doesn't just name drop them in in the interviews I suppose the the reason why you focus on technical decisions is because it gets you away from giving away um, or, or like you say, prescribing to the audience what they're meant to take away from the film. Yeah. And I I think he, he wants to be an artist who can work from the subconscious, you know? So I think part of what's happening in his films is, you know, he wants to have this kind of freedom, you know, and I think this gets back to, um, you know, what I was talking about with his early films and what um, a lot of Canadian cinema was representing. And he gets, there's a kind of running dispute that you can follow through the book uh, between him and Robin Wood, the film critic, you know, the great, uh, you know, Canadian film critic who wrote about horror film early on. And for Robin Wood, um, you know, I think he was right to say, you know, he his one of his important perceptions was that horror films, you know, horror was a great genre to reflect society, you know, to, to look at as a reflection of society. And there were directors like George Romero um, and John Carpenter. There are a number of very interesting directors, you know, whose horror films you could look at as kind of allegories for uh, American society. And, um, and I think... Robin Wood found that very useful as, as a critic and wanted to interpret films that, that way. And, um, and Cronenberg bristled against that. You know, he didn't want his films to be so easily interpretable. 
And I think, and I think, and he also didn't, I mean, what he really didn't want to feel was that um, his films had a kind of responsibility or an obligation um, to be pro- progressive, um, you know, to be radical in a kind of prescriptive way. Um, you know, he, he, I forget the exact quote, but he basically says, you know, he, he has a comment about the artist's responsibility and, you know, to Cronenberg, the artist's only responsibility is to his own subconscious and to creating a kind of artistic expression. He, he's not responsible, he or she, the artist is not responsible to improve society. You know, I mean, I think what Cronenberg's movies all do they all celebrate a kind of freedom. You know, they all are the, you know, the works of a, of a, a kind of liberated thinker. And, and I think his movies put you in touch with yourself in a, in a really profound way, you know, on, on an intellectual level and on a, on a physical level. So there's something progressive about his films, but it's not in the way that, say, Robert Wood was writing about. So it's interesting that that kind of intellectual debate um, you know, you can fo- sort of follow that um, if, you know, throughout throughout the book. It comes up a number of times. Oh, it's, and, and it's great yeah. that the word intellectual filmmaker that um, isn't just restricted to, say, the avant-garde is, um, comes up in the same sentence, you know. Yeah, uh, and he's, um, you know, he's, it's been such an interesting career to follow. You know, he... I mean, there's other filmmakers who who are like this, who um, generally, like when people use the term auteur cinema, they're thinking of a filmmaker. Um, I guess now you might easily think of somebody like Wes Anderson or, or Paul Thomas Anderson or David Lynch or Tarantino, you know, directors where their films are so much like a reflection of their own personality and style. Um, and, and Cronenberg is like always, he's not an, he hasn't been an incredibly prolific filmmaker. He's not the type of filmmaker who, who wants to put out, a, you know, a film every year. Um, and he really has a way of finding the movie, the, you know, the projects that are going to be the most personal, but at the same time, I think it was, I think it was like very interesting that he chose to, for all, almost all the films since Naked Lunch to always work with another, like work against another writer. So Naked Lunch is William Burroughs' vision combined with Cronenberg's vision. And Cosmopolis is Don DeLillo's vision combined with, you know, Cronenberg's vision. And Maps, Maps to the Stars is a William, William Gibson novel. So in all of these films, like they're very, they're all Cronenberg. I mean, they're all, his signature is all over the films and the themes are all Cronenberg's themes. But there's a tension between what, you know, Cronenberg's created and what the author has created. And, um, and I think, you know, it was sort of a great insight on, on Cronenberg's part to realize that a kind of transformation can happen when an author, when one artist is, is transforming the work of another artist, you get something new. You know, so that's sort of what, if you think about the fly where you're fusing an insect and a human being, um, you know, I think Cronenberg is interested in these kind of fusions of like two different types of beings to create something new. He's interested in the idea of transformation. So, um, so that, that goes through like 
you know, as it turns out now, most of Cronenberg's films, you know, are some, in a way, like he's, he's an artist and he's always true to himself, but he, he creates that tension of working against another artist and in a really productive way so that his films never feel like too solipsistic, too much inside his own mind. I mean, do you have a preference for the ones that um, are hmm. original versus adaptations? Um, I mean, I do. <laughs> you do? Okay, I'd love yeah. to know what you... What, I, um, I, I, I prefer the originals. Um, you do? Okay. Yeah, I I, guess... I, some of the adaptations I just couldn't... And and I, I suppose I wouldn't count the fly in that because that's one of my favorites. Okay. I know that, yeah. You know, but it's not from a source text in the same way as, say, Naked Lunch or Cosmopolis is. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a real interesting question. You know, I think like to me, I I would agree in a way in that the the key Cronenberg film to me is Videodrome. You know, that's sort of the essential text. You know, the one um, where all the important themes. It, are there in that film. And, um, and I do think existence is a great film, but I also think crash is a great film. And that's, um, you know, I think some of the adaptations are, are at the, at the very top level, you know, with his original films, you know, and I, I think, um, I guess I would say dead ringers and crash probably. Um, but I think spider is a great film. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily prefer one over the other. Um, and it was exciting to see history of violence, um, which, you know, I think is terrific and is, is an, is an adaptation. And I think he, like, he really responded to working within a genre, you know, working in a kind of updated version of a film noir, but then finding a way, um, to make it his own. So, yeah, so it's, 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 um, it's a real interesting question. I've got to ask you the obvious one um, yeah. before we wrap up. Do you have okay. a favorite? And if so, which is it? Um, you know, I, t- I tend to always, um, I guess the first, you know, Cosmopolis comes to mind. I guess I guess there's a tendency to, to love the movies that were hated by everybody else, you know. So, and, I, and again, with Kubrick, I think, you know, you see this with the people who fiercely love Eyes Wide Shut you know, which um, I think is one of Kubrick, you know, to me, that's one of Kubrick's masterpieces, but a movie that a lot of people disliked. Uh, so I tend to go to Cosmopolis as like a favorite. Um, it's also a film that is in a way on such a small scale. It's, you know, it's all basically, basically set within a car. I mean, there's some other locations. And so it's on a shot by shot level um, where you see Cronenberg, really expressing himself. And I, I sort of feel like Maps to the Stars is, is an underrated film. Um, but again, video, Videodrome is probably the one I keep going back to. It's the, the essential one. You know, it's, a, it's a, um, about this idea of the new flesh, about creating something new. Um, it's a dangerous film. You know, it is a film that um, verges on being... I mean, it, it plays within the world of softcore por- pornography, and it's a film that, for, you know, borders on being objectionable and exploitational. And he, you know, Cronenberg got into a lot of discussions at the time about whether he's being, ex- you know, exploitative. Uh, and I don't, I don't think he is. I think he's bring, you know, bringing us face to face with something that that makes us uncomfortable. Um, 
so yeah, I didn't, so I didn't really, I sort of jumped around. I didn't give a definitive answer to your question because I, I love a lot of it. I mean, I love a lot of the films, and, but I guess video drama is what I would take with me to, to the desert Island. And then, um, yeah. And then in terms of just sheer craft, uh, you know, dead ringers is, is very special, you know, because of the level of performance and it's a beautiful piece of filmmaking I mean, where he really had like the resources of, of 20th century Fox, you know, and he, you know, he had the resources of like a big Hollywood film to make that. But what it's worth, if there's my top three, it would be, um, um, video drone. I think that was the one that introduced me to Cronenberg existence, yeah. which I see as a kind of update on video drone for the absolutely game. Absolutely is. Yeah. Um, absolutely. But, you know, and that bit, you know, with the plug, uh, <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> and then and then the one I have to, and that's probably as much to do with Jeff Goldblum as uh, as David Cronenberg is the fly, because um, I love this. I mean, the fly. That. I love the fly. You know, yeah. and it's just I can never take know. the Dead Zone seriously after I saw the Saturday Night Live skit with um, oh, with Christopher um, Watt. Yeah, with the you know as everything gets increasingly more mundane and. <laughs> Yeah. I can never look at it the same again, but I, I did enjoy that too. It was exciting with the fly. I mean, that was a film where um, it just worked on, on all these different levels. And it, and you knew, you know, when, when I saw, I remember seeing the fly and just saying, this is just, this just it draws you in, you know, like a, like a Hollywood movie, you know, like, you know, your idea of like a, a perfect Hollywood film, you know, it, it, it's totally emotionally involving and, and works on that level, you know, and, and there is, I mean, it's certainly true. And, and this is a constant thing with Kubrick as well. And uh, there is a cerebral quality to Cronenberg and his films are, you know, they are very intellectual and there are times when they're, you know, they're a bit, they can be a little bit, um, I mean, cold is not the right word, but um a little bit challenging emotionally. He's not a sentimentalist by any means. You know, he doesn't <laughs> trust easy sentiment. So you kind of have to work at the films. Um, mm. I think it. I think in The Fly, you can sort of get carried away. You know, you can get swept up by it. But um, yeah, so that's a good list. <laughs> Your list. <laughs> well, I'm sure we could talk all um, my evening and the rest of your morning and afternoon about, about Cronenberg. So um and, and but we've used up plenty of your time already. But one thing I'd like to ask um, before we wrap up is, um, what what are you working on now or, or next? Well, at the at this second, I mean, we're um, I'm putting together a Jane Campion retrospective. You know, we're at, at Netflix. Of course, we have uh, the Power of the Dog, and um, it's exciting, to, you know, to see that movie get so much attention. You know, I think she's had an amazing career, but to see her make a film that is, you know, getting the kind of attention that it's getting, you know, makes you want to look back at this incredible group of films she's done. And she only has, has made eight films, uh, eight features or nine, I guess, um, with Power of the Dog. So, so that's what, you know, that's, that's uh, what we're focused on at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, that sounds great. And um, I look forward to, look forward to that. Um, and um, yeah, I'd just like to say thank you very much for your time today. It's been a great chat. Oh, I've really enjoyed it. Same here. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>